Good morning. Our sermon text this morning is from Nehemiah chapter 9. Trey has read that for us, but I invite you to turn there with me. Turn there with me, please, Nehemiah chapter 9. As we're turning to Nehemiah chapter 9, let me make this observation. My brothers and sisters, we have much, much to be grateful to the Lord our God for. Much to be grateful for. But nothing more than His grace toward us in Jesus Christ. I cannot help but think of that as I read Psalm 103 this week. An echo of a portion of Nehemiah 9. Brothers and sisters, we are grateful and thankful that the Lord is merciful and gracious, that He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We are thankful that the Lord will not forsake His people. We're thankful that He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. As high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how great His steadfast love is to those who are His people. He has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, and He shows compassion to us just as a father shows compassion to his children because we are the sons and daughters of God. And the Lord our God knows our frame. He knows what we're made of. He knows that we're dust. He loves us. He always loved us. There'll never be a time when He does not love us. He cannot love us more. He cannot love us less. And He will never forsake us. I pray that you're encouraged at those thoughts of the Lord our God this morning. Now to Nehemiah chapter 9. Does it seem to you, as it does to me, that much of our lives as believers are characterized by cycles that repeat themselves over and over? Well, I suppose there are numerous types of cycles that we all go through, and not all of us repeat all of the same ones, do we? Some cycles are good, and some cycles are not so good. However, however, based on the Scriptures, And on my observation, and I suppose yours, based on discussions with brothers and sisters in Christ and my own experience, it seems that one of the primary cycles that's repeated in many of our lives goes something like this, and it reminds me a lot of the text that Trey read for us from Nehemiah 9. As believers, we take in the Word of God through the reading of the Scriptures for ourselves or from hearing them preached, or maybe we hear a good scripturally rich and doctrinally solid song. The Spirit of God then impresses on us the glory and the goodness of our God. And as we think on God's glory and goodness and we want, we desire, we desire to worship Him as we ought, we see ourselves and our besetting sins and our all too often willful willful disobedience in the light of God's glory. Convicted by God's Holy Spirit, we repent and confess, as we ought. And we commit ourselves to never committing those sins again. All the while knowing, based on our past performance, that before very long the same cycle will very likely commence again. We spiral up, then we spiral down. We spiral up, then we spiral down. 
I want to confess to you this morning, each and every one of you, before the Lord our God, that I am a vile, rebellious, filthy, wretched sinner saved by grace. Praise God. I pray for humility and practical holiness. I know you do too. I long to experience the victory over sin and finally put it to death. But not unlike Paul in Romans chapter 7, I genuinely desire to be obedient to the Lord Jesus, but nevertheless I often find myself in the downward spiral. I trust that some of you would confess the same kind of things about yourselves. Beloved, every single day, we are engaged in spiritual warfare. We are engaged in warfare with a devil that hates Christ, and he hates the people of Jesus Christ, not just corporately, but individually. My brother and my sister, on the authority of God's Word this morning, I tell you that the devil hates you, the devil hates me, and he will destroy us if God would allow it. We live, we're immersed in a seductive world that spares no expense to get our attention and to steal our love from our Lord Jesus. And we're engaged in spiritual warfare with an old sinful nature that resides inside of us that will not die and stay dead. And then each and every one of us are constantly beset by temptation from without and within. Brothers and sisters, Satan would condemn us. The world would condemn us. Even our own hearts would condemn us. It is spiritual warfare. Now for us to engage the world and the flesh and the devil in temptation with only our will and our intellect with our determination and our supposed strength, is going forth into the battle unarmed. To neglect the truth and disregard the weapons that the Lord our God has given us to fight with is to doom ourselves to failure after failure, not unlike the Hebrews that we read about in Nehemiah chapter 9. But beloved, do not despair. Do not despair. The Lord our God has given us grace in Christ Jesus to engage and to be victorious in this spiritual warfare, and He has made gracious provision for us in Christ even when we fail. He will not forsake us. The very point of Nehemiah chapter 9 is this. It's that the Lord our God is a gracious and merciful God to His people. He is faithful to His people even when they are unfaithful to Him. And He will never, no, never forsake or cast His people away. Be encouraged, my brothers and sisters. Now, also as a part of the introduction to Nehemiah 9, I would have you recall that the Hebrew people that are in Nehemiah chapter 9, they're under the Mosaic Law. They live under the Mosaic Law. A conditional covenant initiated and established by God. Never for the purpose of saving them, but for the purpose of declaring to them His nature, His character, and His commands, and His demands 
on his people. It was a conditional covenant established exclusively for the Hebrew people by God. And the terms were very simple. Obey the law and be blessed. Disobey the law and experience the curse that God had promised. Well, Nehemiah seems to be, Nehemiah 9, seems to be an excellent example of one of those cycles that I mentioned earlier that just continues to repeat generation after generation. Now, here's the cycle from Nehemiah 9. The Word of God and the Spirit of God, through reading, preaching, praying, and meditation, reveal the glory and the attributes of God to the people. The people perceive themselves as sinners in the presence of the Holy God. The people repent of their sins and seek the forgiveness of God. Some, very likely, experienced true and genuine repentance. Then, they determined by their own will, by the power of their own will, to initiate an arrangement with their God. Whereby their own strength to obey Him and keep His commandments from this time forth and forevermore. Don't miss that. They initiated a covenant with God. Whereby their own strength and their own determination that they would be obedient to Him. And then they failed. Just as generations of people before them and after them have failed. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning grateful and thankful for your grace toward us in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you do not deal with us in accordance with our sin and iniquity, but you deal with your children through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the grace that you initiated toward us before the very foundation of this world. Father, I know that my brother that spoke this morning about fighting sin and I are not the only believers in this room that are fighting sin. Lord, I pray that as we preach from Nehemiah this morning, Nehemiah chapter 9, that your spirit would be at work in each and every one of us, Father, particularly those that may be on the very edge of despairing. I pray, Father, that your Spirit would encourage us from this text and others that I will reference this morning. Father, we truly believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Our faith is in Him alone. And by your grace, you've given us that faith. Father, we truly and genuinely desire to be obedient to you. And Father, we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, would you take this time today to glorify our risen Lord Jesus, to encourage us to engage in this spiritual warfare, not from a position of despair or defeat, but with the confidence of the victory that Christ Jesus has accomplished for us. 
Father, glorify Christ and encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen. The first point is this. In verses 1 through 15, the Hebrew people considered their God. They took the time to stop and consider their God. Having heard the reading of the Word, having experienced all the things that we read about in chapter 8 and Trey preached to us last week, you see that in verse 2 of chapter 9, on a particular day, they separated themselves from the world and they confessed the sins of their fathers. Not unlike what we have done here this morning. We've come in here, we haven't locked the doors, but we have separated ourselves from the world. We profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. Come out from among them and be ye separate. God has made us holy. God has separated us unto himself. God has separated us from our sin. We didn't initiate that. Almighty God did. So on this particular day, we have separated ourselves from the world. The doors are open and we invite the world to come and hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But by being here this morning, and not being on the golf course, not being in the boat, not watching the pregame show, by being here, it is a testimony. Just as sure as if you said the words, I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's important that I meet with my brothers and sisters on this particular day. Verses 3 and 4, then they read the word of God and they confessed their sins and they worshipped God. Not unlike what we're doing here this morning. Now notice, as we look through verses 5 through 15, in 5 and 6, they confessed. They confessed or they professed with their mouth that Jehovah is their God. To the exclusion of all other gods, with a little g, all of the false gods, they are the children of of the true and living God. They confessed that. They rejoiced in the glory of the Lord their God. They acknowledged that the Lord their God is self-existent, that He's eternal, that He is holy, that He is separated from all other things, that, he is, that there is nothing like God, that He is wholly other, completely other. And they confessed there the sovereignty of God. Brother Greg, I... I'm looking at that right now, and I don't see those words in there. No, those words aren't there. But when you look at the description that they give of God, He can be no less. They declared the fact that Jehovah has created all that there is, seen and unseen, material and spiritual. If it's not God, God created it by the word of His power. He not only created it, He is the sustainer of it. That is our God. And they affirm that Jehovah is worthy of the praise and the worship of all of His creation and every being that inhabits His creation. And then in verse 7, they celebrated that salvation belongs to the Lord alone. You understand that, my brothers and sisters. Salvation belongs to God alone. And those to whom He chooses to grace with salvation. They celebrated that by His sovereign grace, He chose to save Abram from the spiritual death of paganism and idol worship. They celebrated that by His quickening power, He gave Abram spiritual life. 
They celebrated that simultaneously with that, he gave Abraham the evidence of spiritual life, faith, and repentance. It was true in Abraham's day, and it's true in our day today. Faith and repentance are not prerequisites for salvation. Faith and repentance are the evidence that you have experienced God's grace in salvation. In verse 8, they recognized that God alone initiated an unconditional covenant with Abraham. God initiates covenants. And in the case of the covenant that he made with Abraham, it was an unconditional covenant. It was not based on any performance that Abraham might bring forth, or even any of his descendants. God simply made an unconditional covenant with Abraham. Unconditional covenants always come to pass, exactly the way God has determined. The eternal covenant that we read of in Hebrews chapter 13, the Abrahamic covenant, the new covenant, those covenants we are beneficiaries of, but we do not have input into those covenants. That, what is, that is what God has declared to do for us. And God cannot be thwarted. God is worthy of worship for many, many reasons, not the least of which is, is that he cannot change and that he cannot lie. This everlasting and unconditional covenant with Abraham is the covenant upon which all of their blessings were founded as Hebrew people. The Lord is trustworthy to keep his promise, for he is righteous and he can do no other. He cannot change and he cannot lie. In verses 9 through 15, we see that they remembered and they rejoiced. They remembered and rejoiced that Jehovah is the God of salvation. That He hears the cries of His people when they are afflicted. Don't miss that, beloved. Whatever the affliction is that you may be going through, your God hears your prayers. Your God hears your cries. He gathers your tears up and He keeps them in a bottle. He is not unaware of your affliction. He is not unaware of your pain. No, more than that, it is He who in His providence and in His sovereignty is working all things together for your good. They remembered and they rejoiced that Jehovah is the God of salvation, that He hears the cries of His people when they are afflicted, and they rejoiced that God is the deliverer of His people. And they began to recount some of those things that they knew that God had done. That the Lord God had worked miraculous signs and wonders to deliver, to deliver His people from their affliction. He is the God who intervenes. He is the God who intervenes in the life of the Hebrews in the midst of the exodus to remove them out of Egypt and sustain them in the desert. And He is the God that intervenes in my life and in your life. He is the God that intervened in our life on our road to death, hell, and destruction with grace. Not unlike... Saul of Tarsus, on his way to Damascus with a pocket full of warrants to round up those very undesirable Christians and drag them back to Jerusalem and have them tried and either put to death or put in prison. Oh, he was seeking all right, but he was not a sensitive seeker looking for the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, in his sovereign grace, appeared Saul of Tarsus in all of the grace, excuse me, in all of the glory of Almighty God, knocked him in the dirt and blinded him and saved his soul, made him the apostle to the Gentiles and used him greatly to this very day to write many of the books that we have in the New Testament. God intervened in his life. 
God has intervened in my life. God has intervened in your life, my brother and sister. He is the deliverer of His people. He's not just the God who intervenes. He's the God who leads. He's the God who leads His people. He led the Hebrews through the desert by fire and cloud. I've often wondered if that were true today, if I could drive to work any faster on Monday mornings. If I had that pillar of fire going right down Interstate 30, trying to get over there and make my way to the riverfront. But it's not going to happen. We have the complete and total and absolute Word of God available to us. He leads us by His Word, by His Spirit within the framework of His Word. God continues to lead us, not by fire and cloud, but He leads us just as surely. He's also a God who speaks. God spoke to His people at Mount Sinai through His mediator Moses. It is God who speaks to His people. On that day and on this day, He clearly communicates His requirements and our privileges to His people through His Word. Our God has not left us to wonder what it is that pleases Him. Our God has not left us to wonder what it is that displeases Him. He has told us in plain Hebrew language and plain Greek and Aramaic language. And I can't read any of those. But we have good, solid English translations. Praise God. God speaks. He is not a God of silence. God speaks to His people. And He's the God who gives His people rest. Many of us need rest more than we need. We all need rest. Many of us need rest more than we need. He is the God who gives His people rest. He's the God who provides bread for our hunger and water for our thirst. He led and He fed His people in the desert. In summary of all that, the Hebrew people rejoice that Jehovah is the God who chooses His people and delivers them from affliction and provides all they need in every circumstance. The second thing that I'd like to point out is found in verses 16 through 37. First, they considered their God, as should we. Then, they considered themselves in light of their God. And so should we. And here, in verses 16 through 37, we will see the cycle that I mentioned earlier of repentance, restoration, and then falling away again in sin. We'll see that cycle repeated not less than three times in these verses. They considered themselves. The first cycle that we see of it was in the midst of the Exodus. In verses 16 through 18, they acknowledged that even in the light of the glory of God and in knowing the consequences of disobedience of their Mosaic law, that they were proud and obstinate and they presumed upon the privilege of being God's people. God forbid that we should presume upon His grace. I've mentioned grace a lot this morning. You realize that there are people that would tell us that we have no business preaching a sermon that is high and lifting up toward God that, that dwells solely and exclusively on God's grace. They say that that tends toward um, a license to sin among God's people. They don't understand grace. They don't understand that when you experience God's grace and you, you get a taste of that grace, it's not a license to sin. That would be presuming upon that grace. 
God forbid that we should ever presume upon His grace. I've got an old pastor friend, old guy, older than me, up in Kentucky. Somebody came to him one night after he preached a pretty solid grace sermon, and they told him, they said, Don, sounds to me like what you told us is that a Christian can sin all he wants to. He said, you got it. He said, that's exactly what I said. He said, Christians don't want to sin. He said, Christians want to be obedient to God. He said, do they sin? Yes, they do. In their fight with the world and the flesh and the devil. He said, but if you can sin and not feel the conviction of God's Holy Spirit and the need to repent, you're not a child of God. That's true. That's true. They were proud. They were obstinate. And they had presumed upon the privilege of being God's people. They presumed upon God's grace. They had commonly lived in disobedience and they had outright refused to obey God. What the Bible would call sinning with a high hand. Guilty. Guilty right here. Don't know if any of you guys are. Any of you gals are. But I'd have to say that there have been times in my life that I have indeed presumed upon God's grace. And I have sinned with a high hand in that sense. I've been convicted. I've gone to God. And by His grace and by the blood of Christ, He cleanses us. They even appointed a leader out there in the midst of the Exodus. While Moses was coming down off the mountain, they appointed a leader to return them to their life of slavery to their Egyptian taskmasters. Ever think about going back to life, what it was like before Christ saved you out of that? It's kind of what they were doing right here. God didn't allow it, though. He intervened in their life. Even in the midst of them committing a great blasphemy against God and by making a false god with their own hands, that golden calf, and worshiping it, all of a sudden they recognized that God had had great mercy on their forefathers and He did not forsake them. In the midst of their blasphemy, in the midst of them admiring the work of their artisans' hands, how skillfully and wonderfully that golden calf must have been done. And then they lined up to get a ticket so they could bow down and worship it in the very presence of the God who had delivered them from Egypt and led them through the desert. What blasphemy. What blasphemy. I feel it in my heart. You feel that in your heart? But they recognized and realized that God had mercy on them. He did not forsake them. He continued to lead them. He sent His Spirit to instruct them. He continued to miraculously supply food and water. And for 40 years, they lacked nothing. And by the way, as you read how all that wound up, those folks were not the paragon. They were not the ultimate example of how to obey God in the wilderness. But God provided everything that they needed for 40 years. The second example of the cycle occurs when they get to the land of Canaan. In verses 22 through 25, they recognize that God had given great victories to their people over the idol worshipers in that land that He promised to them. He multiplied the Hebrew children as the stars of heaven just as He promised to Abraham. He led them into the land that He had promised to their fathers. There, by God's grace, they captured cities and farms and orchards and vineyards and houses and everything that they needed. God had just set it up for them. Just walk in and it's 
yours. They ate and they were filled and they delighted themselves with God's great goodness. And then, in verses 26 and 27, and then they disobeyed and they rebelled against God. It's starting to make me wonder if prosperity is not more spiritually dangerous than affliction. Every time these folks experienced the blessing of God in their life, they became, in their mind at least, self-sufficient, and they turned their back on God. But He would not cast them away. They turned their back on the law of God, effectively turning their backs on God Himself. They disobeyed and they rebelled against God. God sent prophets to them to call them to repentance. They murdered the prophets. They committed blasphemy against God. The consequence of their sin was great suffering and affliction at the hands of their enemies. The consequence of their sin. Great suffering and affliction at the hands of their enemies. So much so that these blasphemers, these rebels, in the midst of their suffering, they called out to God. And even in the midst of all their blasphemy and all their rebellion, in His great mercy, He gave them judges and He delivered them from their enemies. God would not forsake His people. The third cycle we read about in uh, verses 28 all the way down through 37. God gave them rest. God gave them rest. And what we see here really is just a summary of the rest of the history of the nation Israel after the time of the judges up until the very day that the chronicler wrote this text down. God gave them rest, but nonetheless they committed evil against God again. God had gave them, He gave them into the hand and the dominion of their enemies. And over and again when they turned their back to God from heaven, He heard their cries and He delivered them in accordance with His mercy and His faithfulness. God warned them to turn back, but they continued to presume on His mercy and sin against Him. God bore with them for many, many years. And He even sent more prophets to call them to turn from their evil, but they would not repent. Consequently, God gave them over into the hands of the Babylonians and then the Assyrians. Quite the rod of chastisement. God used the Babylonians as His rod of chastisement. He used the Assyrians as the rod to deliver His people from the Babylonians, but they chastised them as well. Be encouraged about this, brothers and sisters, that when God does bring the rod of chastisement upon it, we will flinch from it, but we are to kiss the rod. And thank God for the rod of chastisement to put us back on the right course and in the right relationship with Him. And don't miss this. God hates the rod. God raised up Pharaoh. God raised up Nebuchadnezzar. God raised up all of the Babylonians and God raised up the Syrians. And He used them as a rod of chastisement for His people. God always destroys the rod. 
God hates the rod of chastisement toward his people. He destroyed the Egyptians, he destroyed the Babylonians, and he destroyed the Assyrians. But in God's grace and in God's mercy, God chastises his people. But even then, these people in Nehemiah chapter 9, they were the living proof after the Babylonians and in the midst of the Assyrians that Jehovah would not destroy or forsake his people because he is a gracious and merciful God. And then in verses 32 through 37, we see that they, these people, they repeated the cycle of their fathers. They made confession for their sins. And then lastly, in verse 38, they initiated the covenant with God that, uh, that we mentioned earlier. And by the end of the book, they'd fallen away again. And you know the rest of that story. Let us learn from their mistakes. Let us never forget that our God is a God who loves us everlastingly and will not forsake us. But He demands our worship and He demands our obedience. The well, third and final point would be this. How should Nehemiah chapter 9 affect the way that we live? That was a long time ago, right? That was on the other side of the cross. That's people that were under a very conditional covenant, the Mosaic Law. We're over on this side. How does... How should Nehemiah chapter 9 affect the way that we live? The truth that we read here should cause us to worship and give thanks to God that He is gracious, merciful, and long-suffering with His people in every age, and that He will never, no, never leave us or forsake us. It should cause us to praise God that He does not deal with Christians under a conditional covenant of law, but under an unconditional new covenant of grace through the blood of the Lord Jesus. Jesus Himself said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What is the new covenant? Well, if we go to Jeremiah chapter 31, what we'll see here is that the new covenant is something that Almighty God had promised at least 150 years before Nehemiah chapter 9. It did not come to pass until our Lord Jesus was crucified. He is the one who accomplished that for us. Bear with me as I read to you what God had promised to do for His people in this new covenant. And notice, notice closely, that seven times in the very few verses that I'm about to read to you, God says, I will. I will. I will. It's an unconditional covenant. It is not based on our performance. It is not based even on our obedience. It's based solely on God's grace alone through the blood of our Lord Jesus. From Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Praise God. Praise God. The Lord Jesus accomplished 
that for us. And we benefit from that new covenant. That is the covenant that we are under. That is the covenant that we are under. Beloved, even so, according to Ephesians chapter 6 and similar passages of Scripture, we are engaged in spiritual warfare, aren't we? The old Puritan William Gurnall, man never wrote one book. It's one of the most highly regarded books that the Puritans ever wrote. He said this. He said, from your spiritual birth until your natural death, from the hour you first set your face toward heaven until you set your foot inside the gate, you will have wars with Satan and sin and self. Beloved, we are indeed in a spiritual battle, but we need not engage from the foxhole of despair. God has given us the grace in the unconditional, His grace in the unconditional new covenant to engage the enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil with the confidence of certain victory accomplished by Christ at the cross. Satan would condemn us. The world would condemn us. Our own hearts would condemn us. But beloved, the Lord our God will not condemn us. Amen. Our Lord Jesus accomplished the victory for us at the cross 2,000 years ago. The eternally begotten Son of God was made flesh in the womb of a virgin. He was tempted in all points just as we are, as much God as the Spirit and the Father, and as much man, as much human as you and I are. He was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. The one man who ever lived that did not deserve to die, he came to die to save his people from their sin. And he did that on the cross. He was made to be sin for us there. And He accomplished for us the fact that God has made us to be the righteousness of God in Him. Our sin was imputed to Christ. The righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. God will not condemn us. Christ accomplished salvation for us. He redeemed His people. He reconciled His people. He purchased forgiveness for His people on the authority of the Word of God. The Lord Jesus Christ there made us the sons and daughters of God. Satan would condemn us, the world would condemn us, our hearts condemn us, but the Lord our God will not condemn us, not based on anything in us, but based on His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. His suffering in our stead, His bearing our sin, His bearing the wrath that we so richly deserve, God is satisfied toward our sin. Christ satisfied that with His blood. <clears throat> My brothers and sisters, there is no condemnation now for the believer. We read in Romans chapter 8 that there's therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen to the contrast between the law of the Spirit and the law of Moses. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of flesh of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh for this purpose, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Beloved, God will not condemn you. He condemned His Son in your place. That's grace. God is for us. God is not against us, beloved. And if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He also not graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, according to Romans chapter 8. Who is it that there is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised 
who is at the right hand of God and who at this moment is interceding on your behalf. God is for us, not against us. We are in a spiritual battle and we must use the weapons that the Lord our God has graciously given us. And those spiritual weapons are worthy of series upon series of sermon and it's far beyond the scope of this sermon this morning. But we must understand this. Those are the weapons that we must use. The people of God have never, they have never, they have never delivered themselves by their own willpower and their determination. Not unto salvation and not from sin. Let us not insist on being our own deliverer. We will not experience victory over sin if we insist on living in our own strength instead of relying on Christ. Our Lord Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And here it is. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't believe. You can't repent. You can't pray. You can't witness. You can't obey. Apart from Christ, we can do absolutely nothing. The Apostle Paul was beset with a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what that was. We don't know how it manifested or exactly how it affected him. But we know that he prayed hard three times that the Lord would take it away. Maybe you've got affliction in your life that you've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for God to take away. Maybe you're as old as I am. There are a couple of you in here that are getting close. They're things I've prayed about since as long as I remember praying, and they're still there. You know what God's answer to me is? It's not, no, son, I don't hear you. His answer to me is, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. And when you start praying for humility, you're likely to get a dose. But there's no holiness without humility. Never forget, the Apostle Paul said, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Christ's work is finished once for all, yet it continues to be at work in believers. We've been freed from our sins. Christ Jesus has freed us from our sins. He's the faithful witness according to Revelation chapter 1 the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. It is He who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. Yet we are continually in need of cleansing. The Apostle John tells us in his first letter that if we walk in the light as the Lord God and Jesus Christ are in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. That's a daily, continually, everlasting cleansing as we go about in this natural body on this fallen planet. We are forgiven and we are cleansed by our faithful and just God. The same apostle told us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God. Beloved, by the grace of God, now get this, beloved, by the grace of God, we are established, we are anointed, we are sealed, and we are guaranteed of glory. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the apostle said, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put also His seal on us and given us His spirits in our heart as a guarantee. Brother Greg, you sound like a Baptocostal when you say that we're established and anointed and sealed and guaranteed of glory. So be it. Those are God's words, not mine. Praise God for God's grace toward His people. Well, let me conclude. It was by God's free and sovereign grace that we were chosen to be the sons and daughters of God. Amen. We were saved 
by God's grace alone. It is by God's grace that we are being preserved. It is by God's grace that we are the recipients of all that we need for life and godliness in this world. It's by God's grace alone that we will experience victory over sin in this world. It's by God's grace through the blood of Christ that we are continually being cleansed of sin. And for all those who persevere unto the end, they will do so only by the grace of Almighty God. Thank God for His grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we are indeed thankful for Your grace. Father, we thank You for the grace that motivated You in love to send Your Son to save us from our sins, to redeem us from the slave market of sin, to reconcile us unto Yourself. Father, we stand before You this morning relishing Your grace, acknowledging that there is no thing in us that makes us worthy of Your grace. If there were, Father, it would not be grace. It would be a reward. Father, we join our heart together this morning and we acknowledge to you and to one another that the only reward that we deserved, the only thing that we have earned, are the wages of our sin, death, hell, and destruction. But we won't experience that because of your grace. Father, your sons and daughters in this room this morning praise you and we worship you and we thank you for what you have done in the lives of your people from the very beginning, and you will do in the lives of your people to the very end. Thank you, Father, that when we sin against you, when we rebel against you, when we, we do things that we know we ought not, when we omit things to do that we know that we should, Father, that there is a path of repentance and confession and cleansing directly through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ by your grace to us. Father, may we never, ever presume upon your grace. God forbid that we should ever presume upon your grace. Father, we pray that you would use your grace to motivate us to a greater, deeper desire to be obedient to you. And Spirit, we pray that you would be at work in our lives. Spirit, we, we confess to you and we ask you to forgive us when we grieve you. And when we quench you, we ask that you would work in our lives, Father, to make us the sons and daughters of God that are obedient to you and that we are uh, uh, members of the Lord Jesus Christ that brings glory to him and glory to this body, this local body of the Lord Jesus Christ, Father. We desire to glory, glorify you here in this little group of believers. Lord, thank you for your love to us. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.